Yeah, I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man. Here's one delusion that we can escape slavery. We can't. Its scars will never fade. When you saw your mother sold off, your father beaten, your sister abused by some boss or master, did you ever think you would sit here today without chains, without the yoke, among a new family? Everything you ever knew told you that freedom was a trick. Yet here you are. Still we run, tracking by the good full moon to sanctuary. Valentine Farm is a delusion. Who told you the Negro deserved a place of refuge? Who told you that you had that right? Every minute of your life's suffering has argued otherwise. By every fact of history, it can't exist. This place must be a delusion too. Yet here we are. And America too is a delusion. The grandest one of all. The white race believes, believes with all its heart, that it is their right to take the land, to kill Indians, make war, enslave their brothers. This nation shouldn't exist if there is any justice in the world, for its foundations are murder, theft, and cruelty. Yet here we are. This is a passage from the Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. This is Iron Mike Stedman, and you're listening to Confessions of a Native Son, a Black veteran's perspectives on race, culture, and business. As I've shared on this platform before, one of my many passions is African-American history, African-American literature, and American studies in general. I got my master's in American studies from Rutgers, Newark, I'm an undergrad in history from the United States Naval Academy. But I will tell you, while I was at Rutgers, I got exposed to the power of fiction and particularly the power of American fiction. You know, when we're younger and we get exposed to books like To Kill a Mockingbird or The Huckleberry, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Fahrenheit 451, you know, all these books. And to be honest, when you're younger, these books can feel more like a burden because they're just assigned text in class and you're not really given the historical context that they set and really the criticism that they're saying about the future or the past and American society in general. You know, literature has the ability to be a form of, of, of protest. And I didn't really have a passion for reading when I was younger. You know, I was assigned books, but most more often than not, you know, even though I was in AP English classes, I found myself, you know, watching the movies of the books and then writing a review based off the movie. And uh, that would get me by or pulling up the cliff notes and all that kind of stuff. You know, we're all guilty of it. But as I'm older now and working on my writing, you know, one of the things that is important for writers is to embrace the writer's life, which includes reading any and everything. And spending days, you know, trying to write every day. And so as I improve my own writing, one of the things I've done is just really leaned into to reading and getting out of just the, the business and the entrepreneur books um, and focusing more on history 
and and literature and particularly American literature. And it's something I had gotten away from. You know, I've been an entrepreneur hustle. So, you know, I read a lot of productivity books and, you know, business books and marketing books. But I've tried to split my time now, um, you know, reading more, you know, business entrepreneurial literature in the morning and saving the evenings for fiction. But in order to, again, improve my own personal writing, I have to read a lot of books. And I was intrigued by the Underground Railroad. Now, Amazon released a series called The Underground Railroad, which essentially is, how do I say this? It is a version of the book with a director named Barry Jenkins, who did this, the movie Moonlight. Um, and so that's the first thing that really sparked my interest to actually want to pick up the book and read it. I had seen it around before, but honestly, like many of you out there, I'm sure, um, it can be daunting reading slave narratives all the time or even seeing it on television because it, it can trigger a certain type of trauma, you know, within us um, as, as a society, you know, seeing the violence. And especially when so many people are trying to move on past it. I know by and large, white America is trying to move past slavery as well as, you know, black America. But there's all this, um, how do I say this, right? We haven't even really told the truth about it, right? And you can kind of see it being reimagined um, in modern history as, as we don't really even get in depth about, you know, that slave experience. I and mean, we never really did. You know, to be honest, when I was in high school, I remember reading about like a short passage or like a paragraph which describes slavery in the textbooks. You know, and we knew it was bad, but we never really knew how bad it was. You know, we never really went into depth into some of the like, you know, the methods that Black people were tortured back in the day. Um, and, you know, the role religion played in our subservience, um, you know, it was more of just kind of like this wave top approach. And what I found is that through fiction and books like Beloved or like even the Underground Railroad, it allows us to create a lot more depth, you know, and go do a deep dive and create this world where you can see slavery for the horror that it truly was. And, you know, I saw the, the series come across Amazon. And again, at first I was slightly hesitant because one of the things I've been focusing on this year is protecting my energy. And I have failed at it, you know, miserably on a lot of occasions, but I'm still trying to improve. So I'm really conscious of the inputs that I allow myself to take in. But I had a frat brother who told me I should check out the series. And so I decided to suck it up and uh, watch the series. And I was actually um, blown away by it. And I was so blown away by the series that I immediately ran to the bookstore next to my building and uh, bought the hard copy um, to read it, to see how it aligns up with the series. And uh, finished it last week and figured I would come on this platform and discuss it with you all. And I know this is a little bit different from some of the topics I discuss you know, on the podcast, but one of the reasons I really want to lean into to discussing literature uh, and books on here is because I'm growing. You know, I have, I still have grand aspirations for this, this podcast. You know, I describe it as my own little personal PhD and, you know, I'm a Renaissance man, right? So I'm not just, you know, the entrepreneur, right? I'm a deep thinker. I love history um, and I love literature and fiction. And so there's a lot to my personality, and this platform gives me the ability to explore it in front of you all. 
you know, and I hope that you all, you know, have some takeaways from it. And I've actually been putting it off for the longest. You know, one of the first books I wanted to come on here and talk to you all about was Ralph Ellison's The Invisible Man, because it's been a profound uh, book in my life in the sense of just the complexities it conveys of the American experience for black people and giving us, you know, a type of agency you don't really see in the media or you haven't really seen before, you know, because as human beings, as all of us, right, we don't, none of us really fit inside a box. You know, we might just find ourselves in situations that cause us to conform, but we all bring our uniqueness and our individuality to the world. And one of the things I found in that book was just so much of it just resonated um, with me and my experience of, you know, not only going to college, but having grand ambitions of uplifting my race, if that's a thing, you know, because I think a lot of young black men are brought up with this give back tradition. You know, you can only... You're a different type of person, in my opinion, if you can look around at the landscape and see your brothers and sisters that look like you living in poverty, facing violence um, and poor health and all the other stuff that comes with it and not feel some kind of way or not feel like you have this obligation that you need to, 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 to go off and get your education and make money so that you can give back to your community, you know, and uplift your people. And that's the kind of tradition I came up in. But I've been running from that book, you know, because doing literature, discussing literature on here is a little bit outside of my comfort zone. You know, this is something that I figured I would do with like a professor. I would invite a professor on the platform. We could do a deep dive versus having me, you know, really lean into like a solo episode or bring on a guest and really drive the discussion around the, the text. And so, you know, me talking about the Underground Railroad today is me pushing past my comfort zone and just diving, you know, headfirst in, into it. You know, for I can always put this stuff off, right? When you when it comes to creating content, you can always make excuses and just keep, keep kicking the can down the road. But I just decided to put a hard stop and say, you know what, Mike? I'm going to jump on my platform and I'm going to talk about um, this book. And so before I, I, I get into that and, and, you know, just give an overview of the book and talk about some of the topics, I figured one of the first things I need to do is give my confession. And I will tell you all, you know, and I mentioned it, you know, in the beginning is it can be daunting seeing black trauma. And my confession is I'm tired of it. You know, I'm tired of seeing us beat on the news, whether it's, you know, police brutality or seeing the, the violence in the movies or listening to violence and, you know, in my, in the music and all this kind of stuff. Like I'm tired of it um, because it's just, it's just negative energy for me, right? Like I already know I'm black. I know racism exists. I know the challenges that we face as black people doesn't necessarily mean I want to see the worst of it, you know, all the time. And so I have this, you know, hesitancy again of diving into these slave narratives. But one of the things I've done is I've pushed past it because again, we don't really know right? The, the kind of, the version of history we were given has been a very political, watered down history of the black experience in America, you know? And so part of me thinks that it can be a little bit cowardice um, hiding from that kind of history. And so rather than run from it, I've decided to, to lean into it. And, you know, there's a certain strength 
that comes from learning about your ancestors and really understanding their experience. And it allows you to just put things into perspective. You know, I was recently at a, a, a frat brother's funeral and one of them, the frat brother, one of the, one of our frat brothers was wearing a shirt that said Omega man with the masters, you know, my fraternity Omega sci-fi. He's got this bright, you know, purple shirt, purple and gold shirt that says Omega man with the masters. And when I was looking at that shirt, it hit me. I was like, bro, can I get that shirt? You know, he's like, I was like, bro, where you get that? Where'd you get that shirt? He's like, you want it? And he was really going to give it to me right there on the spot. But seeing those words just really, really just hit me. Because when I was a, a black kid growing up in the South in a single parent home, you know, the idea of going to college and graduating was just such an aspirational goal. You know, like in my community, you know, if you were raised in a single parent home, especially a young black male, and you went off and graduated college, you were winning in the world. That's really all your community wanted to see of you. They wanted you to see, they want to see you do something with yourself. And that was an extremely um, big lift for a lot of families, given all the traps that exist for black men, you know, the prison industrial complex and, you know, the drugs and all this other stuff that are traps out there. And for us to, to you know, our parents to want to see us go off to college and make some of ourselves. And not only did we go off to college, and got our undergrad degree, but then we got our master's. And for, I can't speak for everyone, but that was so, I mean, I, I didn't have the best grades coming up in high school. You know, I was never really the best student. So when I thought about, you know, getting a master's, I always thought, oh, you know, when I would go to high school, I would be done. And uh, not high school, after, after you know, uh, college, undergrad, I'd be done with school, you know? And then here I am, you know, 34, got my master's degree, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm all this kind of stuff. And when I saw that on the guy, on the brush shirt, it just hit me of like, man, sometimes we don't do the best job of patting ourselves on the black or really understanding and appreciating how far we've come. You know, here I was in, as with a group of black men, all college graduates, former military officers, and we all had masters. And when you look on the, the media and you look at what's going on in the news and all the challenges we face, as black and brown people, but particularly black people, you know, that's not a narrative that you see very much. And so what does the slavery tie into that is in a sense of like, I don't know, man, when you think about all the challenges we face as a people in this country, from slavery to, you know, uh, right in the Jim Crow and then all the, the, the war on drugs and all this other stuff, man, you can't sometimes think back and wonder, you know, how our ancestors would feel about our accomplishments today or how they were able to just keep pushing in the face of constant savagery, you know, the loss of freedom, having your family separate. I can't think of anything worse than raising a child and having them pulled from your arms and sent down south or, your, or the love of your life. You know, where you're almost like you're an animal. They treat you like an animal. You're a savage, you know? Um, I can't think of anything really worse than that other than death. And in the face of constant horrors, you know, how do you keep going? You know, we talk about mental health and depression today, but imagine what it must have been like for the slaves back in the day. 
on those plantations, you know, working sun up till sundown for, you know, labor that they can never call their own. And the slaves on the, the sugar plantations and, you know, and the West Indies and all that stuff, man, it's just, it's just, it's terrible. And so every time that we have to revisit that, whether in film or in books, you know, it does cause a bit of self-reflection, like at least for me, um, because, and I always wonder this, you know, f- for the broader American society as a whole, when we see black trauma, whether it's slave slavery on screen or a Michael Brown lying in the middle of the road or a George Floyd or whatever, do people really feel it like we do as black people? You know, it's like, when I, when I see these images on, on media, right? Like I feel them, you know, because I know that could be me or that could be somebody that could be my cousin. That could be, you know, my, my brother, right? Like we see ourselves, you know, when I watch this brutality of slavery portrayed through films, right? I can't help but think about my great, great grandparents, you know, probably longer than great, great, you know, but just my, my ancestors in general. Um, it, it, it like triggers that. And so, you know, when people that aren't black are watching this stuff, is it just purely entertainment? You know, how do they feel? Is there no agency? There's no association with it. And so for us, you know, I think it's just like, we have this challenge of learning about ourselves, but in order to learn about ourselves, we have to really stand tall in front of the trauma, which can be, uh, difficult to do. And so that, that's my confession of like, I get it. I understand the people out there. You know, like I'm a history guy, you know, some days I'm like, you know, I love learning about history and, you know, where we've come from and everything. But some days I'm like, man, I'm just, I'm tired of seeing fucking whips and chains and everything on, on the screen, you know, and in books or whatever. But, um, again, I'm only 34 and I've just now been really scratching the surface on a lot of this history while I touched it, you know, in, 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 uh, in my younger days, now that I understand the value of what a real education is, and that's just reading any and everything and teaching yourself, you know, I'm able to go do a lot deeper dive in my history and the history of my people than I was ever able to do, you know, under a traditional system, including, you know, grad school and undergrad. And so, um, yeah, that's my confession for this. Before I jump into talking about the book, I got to go ahead and give a shout out to our sponsors. First, I got to give a shout out to Dope Coffee, a lifestyle brand that pairs urban black culture with innovative product offerings in the coffee industry. We're not a coffee brand for black people. We're a coffee brand that seeks to elevate black culture through a lifestyle of premium coffee and candid conversation. Shout out to Mike Lloyd and his beautiful wife, Michelle, and all the amazing work they're doing at Dope Coffee. Be sure to check them out. We're currently in the midst of a crowdfund um, and we need any and all support. So head over to www dot real dope dot coffee and uh get in the crowdfund and place your order also i want to shout out to sincerely body a woman-led company that's harlem based and specializes in handcrafted body care that relieves restores and relaxes their products help you feel better naturally if you're suffering from aches and pains and don't want over-the-counter drugs or prescription medication be sure to check them out they have balms bath salts and oils to relax the body and soothe the soul Head over to www.sincerelybade.com. That's Bade with B-A-D-E dot com. Now, I got to give a spoiler. If you haven't read the book, 
or you're interested in reading the book and don't want to spoil for you or seeing the Amazon series and don't want to spoil for you, you might want to go ahead and pause this and come back and check it out later. But if you're okay with getting an overview and hearing me talk about it, and you can check it out for yourself um, or use my discussion about it uh, to determine whether or not you want to spend the time to invest in the, the series of the book, you know, then this will be a good podcast for you. So the choice is yours. I just want to give you a heads up that I will be spoiling a little bit of the book um, for you all that are, that are listening in. So let's talk about the book, The Underground Railroad. I, again, my first exposure to it was through the Amazon series. And what I'm going to talk about, I'm going to blend this kind of series and book, but I'll tell you where the two differ. But I'm just going to give you an overview of, of what the book talks about. And it's a fiction, not, it's a fiction novel um, by Colson Whitehead. And it tells the story of a slave named Cora who grew up on a Georgia plantation. Her mother ran away and left her behind. So people are looking at her like a cursed child. But um, Cora actually decides to, to run from the plantation at the behest of another slave named Caesar, um, who convinces her to flee um, with him to the north via the Underground Railroad. And so the story takes Cora through the South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, Tennessee, Indiana, and eventually all the way to the north by way of the Underground Railroad. And one of the things that I thought was beautiful about this book and really leans into the power of fiction is that Whitehead, the author Colson Whitehead, decided to create, make the Underground Railroad a legitimate railroad. You know, when you're younger and you first hear about the Underground Railroad, if you're like me, and I think, I don't remember how old exactly I was, but when I was younger and they said the Underground Railroad, I physically, mentally pictured like a real railroad. It wasn't until they explained it to me that it wasn't actually a railroad. It was just the way they described themselves because it was a collection of, you know, abolitionists and free slaves that coordinated and, you know, move, move runaways, hit them in basements and cabins and all this kind of stuff. So not actually a physical railroad. But that's the beauty of fiction, man, because you can create this stuff. Right. And so that's what he does in the book. And that's what they do in the TV series. And from the very beginning, I really thought this was a powerful. I don't know, man, it just kind of touched my spirit a little bit, because I think when you think about. I mean, it's all fiction, right? It's imaginary. Right. But it's nice. It was just a, a, a nice way to imagine, you know, my ancestors getting carried to freedom. You know, that they, they that there was this like underground railroad and the beauty of it without the book is like this thing is like nice. You know, it depended on where, you know, where she caught the train. Right. The, the Where she caught the train in Georgia was a little different than, you know, Tennessee. But there was just this certain elegance with the train and the the conductors and the whole process of it, um, because, you know, it's <laughs> rags. Right. They're in rags. You know, you're getting chased by slave hunters, hiding in swamps, whatever, and all this kind of stuff. And then they find themselves connecting to the railroad and get on this beautiful train as it uh, takes them to, to the next stop up north. And so, again, in the book, Cora flees Georgia, but she's actually pursued by this slave catcher um, named Ridgeway. And Ridgeway is like, how do I describe him? He is like a very idealistic um <laughs> white man. Right. And it, it's, it's weird how they contrast the slave catcher in the book, because, you know, for him, 
he despises runaways. If you earned your freedom, if you're a free, if you're a, you know, if you bought your freedom or whatever, right? Like he doesn't care. But for it's the runaways that he hates. It's the runaways that he despises. Because I don't know, man, it goes back to this sense of like, and it's weird, right? Even today, like these laws and stuff, you know, who is it to say that you're a slave? Who gives that power? And then to, to, to judge someone who refuses the laws that are placed upon them by this outside force versus like how they see themselves and to be judged by it is real interesting to me. So he's like a, a he's an interesting character, but his approach to, uh, you know, freedom in America and this like idealistic view he has of like manifest destiny that like America is the greatest country in the world um, and that they have this obligation to, you know, you take what's yours and, you know, just expand this American ideal all at the expense of still, you know, supporting this system of immense cruelty, whatever. But again, these are fictional characters. So, you know, I think Ridgeway, the character in the book, I think he represents probably like the kind of far right, the like super patriotic. Um, and even though some laws don't necessarily make sense, you know, when they are on the books, right? They like ride or die and follow them to a T and become a champion of it, right? Um, and so that's kind of who his character represents. But in the story, you know, the, the interesting thing about Cora is, you know, Cora's mother left her on the plantation. At least she believes that the, her mother left her on the plantation when she was young. And so she had to fight the institution of slavery alone. You know, it's, it's hard enough being born a slave, especially as a woman. And then to be left alone, have no family because all her family died off. And then to be left behind like her mother, I think it's just signal like the ultimate like abandonment and hate and pain that she feels. And for me reading that, you know, about it, it's funny because, you know, fiction, we always think it's like it's set in stone. That it's like, a, like it's an absolute like this is what the author wanted you to take away from this text versus kind of like how you experience the text. And. I couldn't help but think in that of how many black men and women feel abandoned, you know, growing up in a single parent home, you know, whether they had a, a dad or a mother who left them, but like the world is already hard enough as it is. And then having to face it, you know, alone. And then it's just like, what would make like, I think too, when you talk about love, right. How can you truly love something and then leave it behind? unless it was unlovable, right? And I think that can sit to a, a lot of anger and frustration um, and hate for the person that left you behind and then also maybe hate for yourself for being what you appear to be, you know, unlovable. And so, again, this is, this is not set in stone. This is just something I was thinking about um, through that story. Um, but I just know a lot of Black men and women who grew up without, you know, us without the mother or father around. And I know the battles that they struggle dealing with that. I know the battles I struggle dealing with it um, still, but it's just something that I saw in the text that, that really stood out to me. And so, you know, in the book, you know, Cora, you know, after she leaves Georgia, you know, one of the first places that she goes to is South Carolina and in South Carolina. And the way to be actually, actually the way they do the book is each state is its own different, I don't know, experience, right? 
I think the book, I haven't read Gulliver's Travels, but it's referenced a lot, you know, in the book and then especially in the TV series. But each state has its own unique kind of like experience. And so one of the first stops that Cora and uh, the slave she ran away with Caesar uh, go to is a place called is, is South Carolina in a city called Griffin. And Griffin represents in the book almost like this very a blend between like a very like the white liberal society that's about uplifting and educating black people, you know, giving them employment opportunities, giving them education, you know, really making them feel like that they're a part of the society, almost like that, that they, that they've arrived when really what they're doing is they're just doing a form of population control, you know, and they're also using black people to test. They give them syphilis, um, you know, they're running experiments on their children, right? But Cora and Caesar don't know this, right? It's almost like heaven on earth, right? When they get there, they've, they've made their way from the South, the horrors of the plantation life. And now here they are in this nice city where they have jobs and they've got, you know, food and that they can walk around. And um, it almost seems like too good to be true. And sadly, um, it was. And that, but it was good too, because you know, when they first got there, they thought that they wanted to stay. You know, they were like, oh, maybe this is the, this was the first stop on the Underground Railroad. Um, and that because it was so nice, they figured that, hey, maybe they would get married and just kind of stay there and not catch the next couple of trains that were going up north until they, they found out what its true nature was. And in that first city, you know, uh, in the first state, South Carolina, again, it had me thinking about like, you know, liberalism. I don't want to say liberalism. I'll be quite frank. The white liberals, um, you know, if you read any kind of black history, whether it's, um, it's particularly Malcolm X, right? One of the criticisms it has against white liberals is that they are trying to control black thought, right? That like they're in your corner, they support you, but only as if, only if you do what they say, only if they can take the lead versus you kind of taking the lead for yourself or black people taking the lead for themselves and, um, setting their own agenda. And so this is kind of played out in Griffin where it's the opposite, right? Like it's exactly, you know, what Malcolm X and some of the historical figures were talking about of like, there was this kind of signature nature of like, they felt that they knew what was best for the black population. They felt that, you know, uh, taking their kids away from them. Um, they didn't want to be overrun. There are already so many slaves in North Carolina on South Carolina in general that they didn't want them to surpass the white population. So they implemented all kind of forms of, you know, just nasty stuff to, to get the population under control. But it was just interesting because, you know, they're here to help people, right? They come across like they're, they're here to help, you know, and they really believe that they're like doing the right thing, right? That, that, that this is what the Negroes need, you know? Um, and they're deciding for them. And at one point in the novel, you know, they tell Cora that there's an opportunity for her to, get her tubes tied. And she's like, I don't want to tie my tubes. Like she wants to have children, but they were like strongly encouraging to get her tubes tied because, you know, one of the other things was she had been uh, raped while she was a slave um, on the plantation. And um, one of the things about Griffin, I think in the book, they tried to set it up as almost, how do I say this? Like, uh, I think it was also a play on Nazi Germany and the Holocaust because they didn't want just any black people in Griffin, right? They only wanted the best and brightest. So if you were dumb, if you had a disability, 
if you were like injured, I mean, no different on like the plantation to be quiet. You were not the best of the black race. And if you weren't the best of the black race, right, they, you, they figured you were good, just as good as dead. And so they didn't want you. They didn't want to integrate that into society. And when you think about that too, right? Like, I think this also represents a, and this is worth its own conversation itself on this platform, but a contrast between like the NAACP and the black bourgeoisie and the black middle class and, you know, the nation of Islam, you know, which recruited like the junkies off the streets and the criminals, right? The, those on the fringes of American society, because we have this view of like, oh, in order to be accepted in America and to be accepted by white people, that we need only the best and brightest, right? Du Bois stoked this fire with this idea of the talented tent, this idea that if you're smart, black, educated, have a degree, you know, maybe have fair skin, you know, um, good finances, right? Like, yeah, that's the kind of black people we want to show white America who we are, who we can be. We separate, don't, don't associate us with the Negroes in the ghetto, you know, the junkies and the potheads and all these people. We're better than them, right? That's not who we want. And so, you know, you really have this effort within the black community itself to distinguish itself from one another, you know, making sure that, you know, the nation that you're not the black bourgeoisie and the black bourgeoisie are distinguishing themselves from the black lower class. And so, you know, again, this is this is a beauty of fiction, man, because you can draw it out what you want. But I thought it was a, a, at least worth the conversation. And so, um, you know, after finding out, again, uh, Griffin, South Carolina's true intentions, Cora and her companion uh, attempt to flee. Unfortunately, uh, Cora makes it out, but uh, her companion Caesar doesn't. And this is spoiler alert. Caesar um, is captured and is actually killed by the mob in Griffin. And remember, these are supposed to be like white liberals, right? Like American, like white liberals want to do what's best for the Negro. But one of the things I didn't mention is that when they were fleeing from Georgia, um, they actually got captured and were able to escape by killing one of the slave catchers uh, who just happened to be like a 12-year-old boy. And so when the crowd in Griffin finds this out, and they find us out about Caesar, um, they basically act just like those um, in, the, in the deep South, right? The white racism and resentment, right? The savagery, it came out of them, this respectable class of people, even in South Carolina, you know, when it came up, when they found themselves up against it, you know, they reverted just like everybody else. And I think this played on a contrast of like, you know, sometimes people can assume this, like, I don't know, moral superiority, but when they get put in similar situations or certain situations, the true nature comes out. And oftentimes you could find out that they're just like, you know, um, everyone else. Right. And I think that was a play in, in South Carolina of like this respectable class of people, you know, um, as soon as the opportunity presented itself, they turned into savages and uh, killed this slave and, you know, did some terrible things to his body. And again, even though this is fiction, a lot of this stuff did happen. You know, I mentioned that they gave him syphilis. Right. And if you're not familiar with the Tuskegee experiment, you should look it up. But, you know, they gave all these people syphilis in Tuskegee, uh, black people, um, and they thought they were getting treated. And this was the federal government doing this, running tests on us. Um, and so begs the question, you know, how often have they done it? And then you also think about what kind of tests were run on us, you know, without the protection of the federal government during the slavery, you know, when there was less, um, 
you know, oversight on things. And so just raises a bunch of questions, but it does tie into, it plays on the mistrust that a lot of black people have towards, you know, institutions claiming to uplift them and then also the, the government in general. So anyway, Cora ends up fleeing um, South Carolina by the hair of her chinny chin chin and uh, goes on to the next place, which is North Carolina. And in the book, North Carolina is, uh, North Carolina represents the ultimate, how do I say, the ultimate um, place of white supremacy, right? Like they have banned uh, black people from the state. And so if you're black and you're in North Carolina, they will kill you. And what they do is they created this road called Freedom Trail, where they literally hung the bodies of black um, freemen and slaves uh, along this just like never ending roadway. And any white people that helped rescue slaves or anything like that, they were also hung too. And so this kind of played on, you know, uh, Nazi Germany again in the Holocaust. And they set the scene up like uh, the diary of Anne Frank, where Cora gets to North Carolina. Uh, the station there is closed. Um, but there's an agent there who takes her anyway, tells her not to. First, he tells her the station is closed, that she shouldn't be there. Um, but she can't go back to Griffin, you know, because uh, Griffin was crazy. Um, and so eventually this slave cat, the, the, the agent of the station agrees to help her out. But he brings her into this just terrible nightmare and forces where he's actually forced to hide her in the attic for like four or five months. Um, and during this time, uh, white racists in North Carolina are like having rituals where they're killing black people every Friday in front of a crowd and just kind of going on this like white purity that they don't want any black people in the state. Um, and this had me, the, the interesting thing about this episode was not the episode, but also this chapter was they were very religious. So there was this like very like religious piety there. And when the, the, the agent, I think his name was Martin in the book brings Cora um, to his home. You know, he has to, he, this puts him in conflict with his wife. Because his white is this like really devout Christian woman, but they are terrified. They're terrified of the mobs um, and what they would do to them if they got caught. But she's also like, again, she's super devout and she's very vicious and mean to Cora um, and like doesn't want her there. Um, and just just very just vicious and nasty woman. And this is where it kind of splits in the book and the television series, because in the television series, Cora, uh, when Cora is in the attic, she's not alone. There's another little um, girl up there named Fanny. I think she's like eight. But in the book, there is no Fanny. It's just Cora. So I think the director, Barry Jenkins, just wanted to, I don't know, add a little something to it. Um, and I don't know specifically why he made all the changes that he did. But um, this was just a, a spot that I thought was a noticeable note of change. But what this chapter really made me think about was religion. And I'm hoping I can get um, somebody on the podcast to talk about it. But we are always told Christianity, black people have heavily adopted Christianity, at least in the deep South. But it kind of makes me wonder sometimes, and I'm just being honest with y'all, I'm just thinking out loud of, you know, how could we adopt a religion and a version of religion that are you know, that was used to oppress our ancestors. 
and used to justify our status in society as slaves, you know? And this idea that like some of the cruelest people in the world, you know, they could fucking lynch you and then go to church on a Sunday and ask God for forgiveness. You know, it's just crazy to me. And it does make you think about, and every time, and I've always, I've always been curious about this, to be honest, you know, because I have a lot of questions and I'm just, just doing my own little journey on spirituality and everything. But these are real questions that like, I want to, I want to have, you know, and every time you try to have these deep conversations, you know, sometimes people don't want to, they don't want to go there because it challenges everything they know. It challenges your whole way of life. And when you think about us as black people following, you know, Christianity for so long, you know, it's like, man, I wonder, you know, what was our religion before Christianity? I mean, I know what it was. We had, we're very spiritual people. That's why we communicate through music and dance and songs and all these different things. And our religion was very like spiritual, you know, um, there's a lot of books you can read about voodoo and what it really was, but everything that's looked as negative as other is, it tends to be looked as negative. And so one of the aspects of separating us from our identity and forcing us to adopt into America was adopting um, Christianity and our form of religion. And um, when you read, you know, obviously, again, these are fictional characters, but just the fact that someone could be so devout and yet so vicious and cruel, like uh, Martin's wife in the book, just had me reflecting about, you know, the role of religion um, in black America. And so hopefully I can get somebody on to kind of talk about this and understand, you know, the evolution and how we came to fully adopt it. But I, I do think it kind of raises questions, you know, and you can even think about that, you know, today of like, or even during the Jim Crow era, just all this stuff, like how can we be some of the most vicious, evil people to one another, you know, love my brother and all this kind of stuff. But then we treat each other like animals and savages and then want to turn around and, you know, go to church and pray and, you know, think God's going to forgive us for all this stuff. I don't know, man. It's just, it can be um, just, it's just worthy of reflection. So, you know, once again, Cora finds herself in a, a another terrible, dire situation and uh, she's eventually caught, you know, and the people that were holding her, Martin and his wife are executed and uh, hung on Freedom Road while Martha is taken by the slave catcher Ridgeway um, and, and brought into another, the next state, Tennessee. So at this point, you know, she's gone from, Georgia to South Carolina, South Carolina, North Carolina. And then now by way of, of the slave catcher, she's taken into uh, Tennessee and Tennessee in the book and in the TV series is literally like hell on earth, right? It's not suffering. It's not like North Carolina, just white supremacist threshold, but they're battling a uh, yellow fever and all around. It just looks like um, a desolate wasteland. I mean, the best way I can describe it is like, trenches like have you ever seen uh no man's land in uh like the world war one images just imagine no no man's land on fire right and so that's where she finds herself in and so she's she's stuck with these these slave catchers um and she is uh getting brought back down you know back down the south of georgia she eventually is able to escape um by way of some agents in tennessee for the underground railroad who um who free her and uh take her up to Indiana. And this was in the book, right? Let me say the book, but in TV series, right? The station in that was taking her to to uh Indiana 
you know, it was just beautiful and it was elegant. And again, like there's just something about seeing these images on screen and even described like in the book of, I don't know, man, just to come out of such horror and chaos. Right. And then here you are at this like nice train station, you know, that's going to like shove you off to freedom. Right. Like it's, it's magical. You know what I mean? It's like uh, Santa Claus or what else, you know, um, the Easter bunny. Right. It's like our way of like putting some, I don't know, just making it, the, the contrast of it is nice. Right. It's like the, the train almost represents like an angel coming to kind of save him, you know. And when I when you see it on screen, right, versus just read it in the book. Right. It just resonates with me because, again, deep down. Right. I would love to imagine that like something like this existed for our ancestors, even though it didn't. But if I could imagine it like this is what it would be. You know, but in the book, I don't know if it showed. The, I don't remember if it showed the train station or not. Um, but fl they flee, and in the train station in the in the in the film though, right? Like it's just super elegant, right? These guys, the the agents, you know, they free core from the slave carriage and they go to this train station, and it's so elegant. They're drinking wine, and at each stop too, and each stop she has to tell her story, right? That's one of the things in order to get on the train. She has to open up this giant book that collects all the names and stories of all those that took the Underground Railroad. And she has to kind of tell her story. And so as, the, as it's going along, right, she's bringing all this trauma with her, you know, like Cora in North Carolina is dealing with the trauma from South Carolina, you know, and then Cora in Tennessee is dealing with the trauma from North Carolina. And then now she's heading to Indiana and she's dealing with all this trauma and she has to document it. Um, and she, you know, she tells her story and in the book, they don't actually, they don't really do it as well as they do in the film, right? There's like, she's not really documented in the book, but in the film, they actually have like a book and you got to sit down and she has to write out her story. Um, but there's just some, you know, powerful about it. And then she gets to Indiana and Indiana is very, um, interesting because Indiana is like the dream of black America, Right. Cora's, she gets there and then it's just like a bunch of, uh, there's a, a guy named Valentine, John Valentine, who runs a, a plantation, a farm, actually not a plantation. Let me rephrase that. And he hires runaways and free blacks. And it's almost like a commune. It's a collective where everybody works and everybody has ownership stake in it. And, you know, it's almost like this black utopia, right? And finally, you know, after all that kind of trauma, she's escaped. She has this place um, that is like the epitome of like black economic, you know, uplift, right? Where like you actually getting paid for your labor. The whole community is working towards um, the success of this vision and uh, maintaining it and bringing it to life. And one of the things that they're, they're discussing, the community itself, is whether or not they stay in Indiana or they leave and go out west. You know, because there's the time frame that this book is set and it's, it kind of bounces. I don't want to say it bounces around, but a lot of the text and stuff in the book and the scenarios that are played out in the book, it's not just focused in like, I don't know, the, the 19th century. The, I think it's nine, yeah, 19th century, whatever. Um, so, you know, the author takes leeway. Whitehead takes leeway with it. But there's a lot of stuff. I don't know, man. It's just he just brings a lot to it. And when I think of this this Indiana, it's almost like Black Wall Street, right? 
like black people are winning, they're prosperous, right? They're, they've escaped the horrors of slavery. Um, and then they're just, you know, creating their own community. But the thing that's starting to happen is that the white community in Indiana is starting to gain resentment towards the black success, right? That like, oh my God, they think they're better than we are or that they have too much power, you know? And so they're dealing with all this and to the point to where they need to decide whether or not they're going to stay in Indiana, that they're going to um, move out West or they could stay in Indiana. But one of the reasons that the whites were looking, were looking down upon them too was because of their acceptance of runaways. Right. And that was a big point of contention in the book. And that was a big point of contention in the Amazon series of like, Hey, you have this community here and you know, we only want the best black people too. Right. Like, runaways, um, all this kind of stuff, right? Like helping people out, the Underground Railroad, right? It's bringing negative attention to the community, right? And it's creating the scorn and resentment of the white community. And so basically by them taking those runaways in and doing all their stuff for um, freedom, uh, the freedom struggle down South, they were putting their community at jeopardy. And so this culminates up in North Carolina to where, you know, Cora's there. Not only is she a runaway, but she's also murdered someone. And so the community is basically kind of split, or at least she's perceives that, you know, the community is hesitant to take her in because it can bring all this unwanted negative attention. And so in the book, um, you know, they're focused more on about, do they move out West? Do they stay um, and keep helping runaways or do they give in and not help the runaways and, you know, just become good members of society. Um, and then the show, you know, the thing is Cora is like, she, they're telling her that she has a vote because it's a collective, but that she just wants to be, you know, she wants to stay, but only if they'll allow her to stay. And this ends in the fucking worst massacre ever. It's like, but again, it's all, but this stuff happened, right? They white, the white Americans or not white Americans, their white neighbors get jealous, right? They get resentful and they look for an opportunity to, and they take it and they murder everyone um, on Valentine's farm. And again, it's fiction. It's yeah. You're like, Oh, this never really happened. But when you look at Rosewood, right. If you don't know what the Rosewood massacre is, look it up. When you look at black wall street, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma, look it up. When you look at uh, Louisiana, you know, during reconstruction, right. This is not like this stuff didn't happen, you know? So like the author Whitehead is actually pulling, you know, real historical events, um, and blending them and kind of creating, you know, create, recreating them, you know, in this novel using his own uh, little twist. Um, but prior to the massacre, you know, that was the opening I read at the start of this podcast was when I was talking about the, 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 the text I read from the actual book, you know, about this whole thing is delusional. He was referencing Valentine's farm, you know, in the, in the film, it's a winery. And the book is just a farm, but this idea of like black people, this is, this shouldn't exist given all the, the, given all of the challenges we face in this country, given all the oppression and the racism and all this kind of stuff by default, this is, shouldn't exist. And then if, if we think it should exist, that makes us delusional yet here we are, you know, thriving as entrepreneurs running this farm, you know, doing all this other stuff. Um, just real, real powerful. And the film does this very well of the contrast between like light skin and black, 
because in the book, Valentine and the film, Valentine is a, a fair-skinned uh, black man. So he can basically pass as white. And so that's also one of the reasons why he's able to do the stuff he does because white America doesn't feel as threatened by him. You know, whereas the other members on the farm, you know, there's a guy, his his counterpart, uh, the, the, the guy that actually wants to concede to the whites and, you know, not allow runaways and, you know, stop the underground railroad stuff, guy named Mingo. And he's all about like giving in, you know, and he's darker and he doesn't have the the benefits of, of Valentine. And he's, he wants to be accepted so hard, right? So hard. He wants to be accepted by, you know, white America, but they won't have it. He still has to fit inside this box and he knows it. Um, and it beats him up inside. And, you know, I think that's, that's commentary today. You know, we talk about it today. There's so many black people that just want to be accepted. You know, it's like people that just want to like, I don't know, man, how do I say this? That are, again, it goes back to trying to distance themselves from the, the, the blacks that are looked down upon the blacks in the ghettos and the hoods and in prison and all that kind of stuff. Right. This idea that like we're better than them. Um, and it, now a lot of people don't look into the circumstances that created it, but you do get those, those guys, you get black people like that. They're like, well, I'm from the projects. I'm from the hood and look at me, you don't have any excuse. Right. So then they get that resentment. You start looking down upon those, um, that didn't, weren't able to escape and weren't able to make some for themselves. And, you know, it's easy to kind of criticize someone like Amingo. Um, the character in the book and in the, in the film who who feels like that. But I think, you know, even in our community, we feel like that, right? I have a conversation and it's worthy of an episode on this podcast itself about, you know, the Tyler Perry, you know, and a lot of the content that's out there, you know, and like Tyler Perry knows his audience, you know, he knows who he's talking to. So he creates content specific for them and they come out and support him. But those of us that got advanced degrees and everything, we look down and shun upon the Tyler Perry's because we call it coonery. And we feel like he makes us look bad as black people and we want to distance ourselves from it, you know, but we pick and choose, right? We criticize Tyler Perry, but we don't criticize, you know, the Migos and all this other stuff that talks about bitches and hoes and gun violence. No, we like to go to the clubs and get, you know, dance and do all that kind of stuff. But then we want to turn around and criticize Tyler Perry as if he makes us look worse than a lot of the, um, a lot of the other uh, ways we express culture uh, there are a lot of the other mediums that our culture expresses themselves. Again, television, movies, um, music, um, et cetera. But this scene, honestly, you got to see the scene yourself, right? Again, I read part of it in the book, but the way they do it in the movie on the, 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 the I call it movie. It's like a 10 episode series on Amazon, but the way they do it is like absolutely fantastic. Um, and it's sad. And again, it's like you're watching this stuff, right? Reacted on screen and you know it's fiction, but it still pisses you off because you know it happened um, in real life, right? And so, you know, poor Cora, the girl's been going through it now, right? Like she's gone through all this kind of stuff. Every time she thinks she gets ahead, you know, boom, something bad happens and she has to flee again. And, uh, you know, she eventually does flee, uh, makes it out okay gets in a scrapple with the uh, scrapple with the uh, slave catcher, but uh, manages to get away and then head to the north. And you're thinking about like this, this crazy, you know, you, you, the story is like, you think you're hoping that there's like some light at the end of the tunnel that, um, you know, she's going to find 
you know, that the life and happiness that she's kind of always looking for. But, you know, she leaves um, Indiana again by, I forgot what those carts are called, right? Like the trains that you pump yourself. She makes her way on one of those. Um, but yeah, she makes her way on one of those. And then the next chapter is it talks about her mother, Mabel. And remember at the beginning, I talked about how a lot of times there's a lot of healing and stuff going on with the black community from people that feel abandoned by their parents, especially growing up in a single parent household. But a lot of times we don't necessarily know the circumstances that cause their departure. You know, we can just kind of make it up in our heads, right? You're lucky if your parents tell you about, about it, but if the, you don't really know, it's kind of one of those things you don't really talk about. And so people just kind of make up their own assumptions that they had in their head. And, you know, Cora had always felt like her mother ran away and abandoned her and just hated her for it. The film does something different than the book for this, because in the film, you know, her mother, Mabel, um, experiences so much trauma, particularly over the death of one of her friends that, you know, she's sent in to basically clean up this, uh, clean up the shack after her friend commits suicide, you know, um, because she had her children taken away and uh, was where she committed suicide because she lost her child, multiple children through miscarriage. And because of the horrors of slavery, they still wanted her to breastfeed some other kids. And so she believed that those kids were hers. And so she kind of lost it. She wasn't right in the head and she ends up killing herself and butchering the babies. And, her mother, Cora's mother, Mabel, is sent in to clean up after her. And when she goes into the room and experiences all that, she's just so traumatized that she just kind of drops her stuff and just walks out into the woods and just keeps walking. And then all of a sudden, she's walks. Next thing you know, she's walked for like three miles, four miles. And then she like snaps out of it and she goes, Cora, you know, and realized that she was leaving her baby. And she turned around and went back. And on the way back, she gets bit by a snake, ends up um, dying. And uh, being left in the creek. And so this whole narrative, and it's throughout the story of that, like, Cora's mother, Mabel, is like, she's like a legend because she's the one that got, got away. And Ridgeway was the one, the slave catcher was supposed to bring her back, and he couldn't find her. Um, and so this always had nagged with him because he found, like, he took, like, real pride and pleasure in his work. And he was embarrassed that he actually let one get away. And I think that's why at the beginning of the book, too, Caesar wanted to take Cora with him when he ran away because there was this sense that somehow she was like lucky. You know, she, she was a, a good luck charm because her mother had ran away um, and made it. So, you know, I took away that from in a sense of like, you can always, I don't know, we can have these negative thoughts about people in our lives that abandoned us. We feel like we're abandoned. But at the end of the day, myself included, like you don't know everything, you know, it's, I think like, I had a friend that say like, there are no apps, there are no absolutes, you know, and in star Wars, it's like the Sith deal in absolutes. That's why they're dangerous. Right. Because there is no, it's just, everything is just black and white. Right. Yes or no. Right. There is no like no real understanding or leeway. It's like it is or it isn't. Um, but you never know what people got going on. You never know about the background and you never know about the real circumstances surrounding their departure. And when I saw that um, in the film, that's what I immediately thought of. I thought back to, you know, um, you know, people that have left their children, um, but we don't really know the everything, right? You only know what you, you know, but, you know, you still, you still can create some resentment. 
And in the book, you know, in the movie, Cora never finds out. Now, in the book, her mother does actually leave. It's not triggered by trauma. You know, her mother just had to leave. She had to get away. But once she got about three miles out, she realized that she couldn't leave without her daughter. You know, and she was just so content to make it three miles because she was like, that was the best freedom she ever felt. And if she never made it further again, at least she got to experience that, you know, those moments of freedom. And as she goes back again, she gets bit by the snake and uh, never makes it out the swamp. So very sad ending, you know, for Cora's mother. And it's, it's just terrible because this whole time, you know, Cora's thinks that her mother just straight up left her, you know, and that she was unlovable. And in the, in the movie, it's sad because, you know, when she gets up, you know, Cora's just laying next to her, you know, she's literally laying next to her in the bed, you know, she's holding her stuffed animal or whatever. Um, and then when she wakes up, her mother's gone and then, you know, never came back and slave life was already hard enough as it is. Um, and the slaves, you know, just because of the environment itself and the way they described it in the book of like, it's not like the slaves were like, um, you know, happy go lucky, right. They had their own inner squabbles about land because when people don't have, you know, when people don't have much, right. The little that they do have, they'll fight and kill over it. And it could be something as simple as a piece of land. It can be a piece of fruit, you know, or whatever. Um, and so it brings out like the worst in people, even on the plantation. And again, you know, Cora was raped, you know, on the plantation, not by a white man. She was raped by, you know, the slaves, um, the slaves that were working with her. And when I think about that, right. And this could be a reach, you know, but I was talking to, I got a frat brother named Amir Sharif, and we were talking about this black on black violence, right? And what causes black on black violence? Um, and like over the pettiest stuff, right? Which is like respect, right? We think respect or like somebody stuck off my sneakers or somebody like, you know, called me out my name or whatever. It's like, is it worth killing somebody over? And one of the things we were talking about because, uh, you know, Amir is from, you know, like Brooklyn, New York, right? And when you grow up in poverty, and you don't have anything, right? The only thing you have left is your respect. And it's like, people are so afraid of what's on the other side of that. They're like, if you take my respect, what do I have left? You know? And so it's like, nigga, I will kill you over respect. And that's why we get a lot of these dumb situations of fights and all this kind of stuff. And I'm not making an excuse for it. I just think it, it it comes from like the circumstances, like the dire poverty, right? And a lot of times I think when we talk about the black experience in this country or our predicament, the predicament black Americans find themselves in, right? It's always viewed as negative culture, right? And there's some, like, I'm not saying certain things definitely don't help the matter, right? Like we do better with some of the music and all this other stuff. But what if we flip it and you say that the music... And the media is a reflection of the culture, right? Like they, it's hard for them to talk about or describe, you know, their existence um, into, uh, when it's something that it's not, right? So like, if you want to know what it's like in the streets, you listen to street music, it'll tell you exactly what's going on, the drugs and the violence and stuff. They talk about it, right? Like it's there in the music and in the lyrics. Um, so it's actually like speaking truth. It might not necessarily be like, you don't want to listen to it, um, but it's like, it's raw and it's real. Um, and it gets to the, it gets to the kind of core of that. And so I think, you know, again, the whole dynamic on the farm, 
I mean, on the plantation with black slaves uh, and what they're doing against other black slaves, right? Again, you see this today, you know, black people fighting over scraps, you know, because again, it's respect. They don't have much or so whatever they have, right? They're going to fight and they're going to kill for it. Just the dumbest stuff. Um, but it was really sad to see um, in the book and they didn't really play it as much um, in the, in the film, but in the book, you're like, it really, really hit on it. Um, so yeah, you know, that's, that was Cora's mother's demise, you know, getting bit by a snake and left in a swamp and Cora spending the rest of her life thinking that her mother abandoned her and that she's, you know, basically unlovable and now somehow flawed. But luckily she frees, she makes it, you know, from the horrors in Indiana, escaping the massacre at Valentine Farm and then gets north and there's a black guy, you know, on a road in a wagon. There was like two people that passed by her prior to it. But this black guy was just like, where are you going? You know, you want some food? You need some help? And uh, gives her a ride. And then they start moving up north. And then, like, that's where the novel ends. So it's not like she ever arrives anywhere. It's not like this happy ending. And I think, you know, it's like, uh, I haven't read this book yet. But there's a book by Joseph Conrad called The Hero's Journey. Or the Hero with a Thousand Faces. And I believe that this is the book that Luke Skywalker, not Luke Skywalker, um, George Lucas used to create Star Wars off of, you know, this hero journey. The hero goes on adventure, meets a guide, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the journey transforms him and he's a new person and, you know, he wins the day. Happy ending. Right. And a lot of our films, right. A lot of our books can be set up with that kind of narrative that there's this like happy ending because it makes us feel better. Right. As the viewers, as the consumers, of the content, no one wants to read anything depressive that there's not this light at like the end of the road, you know, that somebody has trauma all their life. And then, you know, we always think that they're going to overcome it, but they don't, you know, and then they die or something happens. And it makes us kind of look in terms of ourselves. It's like, man, that's just depressing. You know, I don't want to go to sleep thinking about that. I just want the happy ending. And this book doesn't give you that, right? It doesn't give you, there is no happy ending, you know, it's just showing this, this character and all the tragic stuff she has to go through um, and just how like the trauma is basically like carrying over and just kind of how she's keeping it together, how she's dealing with it. You know, you see the physical representation of it on film, her hesitancy, her hesitancy to, you know, get in another relationship after she loses Caesar, who um, she had aspirations of, you know, settling down with and everything only to have, you know, that lover killed, you know, her understanding how to trust, dealing with trust. Um, even trusting white people because when she comes out of, you know, when she does make it to the North and I don't even think they tell you in the book or this or the film where um, she actually arrived at, but you know, there were two white like uh, carts that came by until she linked up with the black guy and you know, the white car, I, I don't know if the white cars asked her if she needed any help or if they just kept going by, but it's just like, man, like after all that, like, cause she trusts white people, you know, after all that, cause she even trusts black people, right? Cause she's bringing all this, stuff with her. And so, you know, the, the book ends on, you know, Cora just getting on the wagon and heading off. I think she was even heading to the North. I think she was just heading to the West. She was just going on wherever life was taking her. Um, but she's, she was surviving. And so, you know, as I'm thinking about this, right, like reading this book and watching the film, it just showed me of like, I don't know. Like I've read Pulitzer Prize winning books before. I think there's a book called The Devil in the Grove that was really, really good. 
um, reading uh, the Underground Railroad, I don't necessarily know if I thought it was like Pulitzer Prize worthy. Like it was a really good book, but I don't know if it was like, oh my God, like one of the best books I've read, you know, and just doing some, just doing some, uh, I won't say research on it, but you know, you do wonder, you know, a lot of these, these authors that get, you know, publishing deals, whatever, and that are publishing consistently, right? Is there like a hype that kind of comes around, you know, putting these books as like, um, you know, the, 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 the best things in sliced bread, right? Like, is it like, there's this, is there like a literary industrial complex of where like the publishers are, you know, paying money or fighting for favoritism to get their book reviewed, et cetera. And then everybody tells them how great the book is because, you know, I read this one and I actually read another, um, read, I read another, uh, slave narrative, the Water Dancer by Talasi Coates. Um, I don't know if I'm going to do a review for that one, but based off the feedback y'all give me on this, um, talking about the book, um, you know, uh, I might I might do something on that. Uh, um, I don't even know if this was much of a review as much as me talking, but it's important for me to do because I've been running from this kind of content and I wanted to do it. And if I just keep putting it off, it'll never get done. So I appreciate y'all tuning in with me um, thus far. And I hope I didn't, you know, ruin it. I'll probably ruin the story for a lot of y'all, but trust me you'll you'll still enjoy it but you know i want to say this about um i do want to say this about the book it is i don't know man i just feel this inspiration around fiction lately um and it must have done something right because again right after seeing the film literally the next day i went and bought the book and i read like all 300 pages in like uh, a day and a half and you know the way he set up the book and the way he did the chapters, you know, it's just, I don't know, man, it's just something amazing about authors and fiction writers just creating worlds out of thin air. You know, I think about the same thing when I watch films, right? Like how can somebody create that stuff? You know, just the thin air, the props and all that kind of stuff. And I know it's like a team effort, but at the end of the day, you know, someone sits down and they write out the characters and they do all this kind of stuff and they create the roots and the bare bones of it. And then they make it into this like, magical production. And I think as you get older, as we get older, we can sometimes wonder and just like, man, how do people have all these different skills and talents in life? You know, whether like writing fiction or producing movies and films and you know, all this kind of different stuff, because, you know, when I was growing up, man, I didn't, I would have never thought of myself as like a writer or an author. I didn't even know that was like possible. You know, you only know what you're exposed to. Right. And then as I'm getting older and it's just like, there's so many opportunities and I think it can be overwhelming at times, particularly for veterans as they're transitioning because they don't know which way to go, you know, um, and civilians too, right? Like, you know, people hit midlife crisis and they're like, what do I want to do with my life? Am I doing my most important work? Um, and there's just something about, you know, leaning in and finding out how to create stuff. I don't know. So again, for me, I'm working on becoming a better writer and I know that like, I read something. It was like, hey, well, how will you know when your novel is done? Um, and somebody was like, well, if you read 100 books, you should know when your novel is done. You know, if you read 100 good books, right, that you learn from and you can kind of see the different way people set up their, their structure and their novels and everything. Um, by the time you write yours, you should have a, a good idea of like when it's done or not. And that really resonated with me. So I'm like on this tear where I'm just reading a lot of fiction um, everything from like 1984 to Fahrenheit 451, you know, a lot of the classics. And I'm also, you know, making sure I get to read some modern stuff like Whitehead, like uh, the Underground Railroad 
and uh, the water dancer. But for the book, you know, it was a, uh, it was a good experience, man. I think he um, it was a great book. Again, I don't know if it was the like one of the best books I read, but hey, it was worthy enough for me to come on here and talk to you all about. But uh, I highly encourage you all to check it out. And, uh, you know, I if I can pull myself, I can force myself to do it, right? Because I want to overcommit. Um, but, um, you know, I want to write blog posts on uh, confessionsofanativeson.com. Um, but it's just hard balancing all my other stuff I got to do in terms of like running my business, uh, managing the nonprofit Ironbound Boxing, writing my own stuff for native or confessions of a native son. And then, oh, I'm going to commit to writing this blog post. And it's just like, oh my gosh, you can be overwhelming. But um, it's all part of growth, right? So, hey, maybe this first one isn't so bad. It's just going to be a good starting point for me to pick up off of because I know the next book that I'm going to be talking about on this platform is uh, Sam Greenlee's The Spook Who Sat By The Door, which, by the way, is one of my top uh, five books of all time. Um, so hopefully, uh, and I'm going to say hopefully, I'm going to commit to doing that. I don't know if it's going to be the next episode or one after that, but I'm going to drop uh, an episode where I talk about The Spook Who Sat By The Door. So I appreciate you all tuning in with me um, for this uh, session. I'm going to call it session, this episode where I talk about um, the Underground Railroad you know, I know it's probably a little bit all over the place, but it's all fun. You know, my goal is to just create good, engaging content. And I know the opening was a little bit, um, probably a little bit heavy for some of you out there that don't like um, the slave narratives or that probably think uh, Colson was coming straight after white people. But uh, that's just not the case. You know, if you're going to talk about slavery, if you're going to talk about racism, uh, particularly, particularly in a uh, fiction setting, you know, you can't be afraid to talk about, I don't know, the truth surrounding it. And sometimes for all of us, right, the truth can be hard to hear. You know, and I think in that opening where he talks about, you know, that they killed the Indians, that they enslaved Americans, that, you know, we have this history of torture. Um, we have this uh, history of brutality and violence and all this kind of stuff. You know, at the end of the day, it's true. And I think a lot of times, right, and you see this now, um, even in the midst of like, I think they call it like cancel culture and that, but you know, we just haven't given a platform. This is the first time through the internet that a lot more marginalized underrepresented, underrepresented voices have a platform to share their American experience and how they view the world. Right. Um, before, you know, you could do it in books, right. But there's just so many different ways to do it now, but even in books, right. People can hear somebody describe America that way and get super offended instead of sitting down and saying, hey, is there some truth to that through their perspective, right? Like if I was a Native American, right, would I look at the foundation of America as one of murder, theft, and cruelty? You know, even though they might find themselves alive and thriving, you know, in 2021, they can't help but look back and see like, hey, how were their ancestors treated in this country? And I think it's, uh, you know, definitely Black people, and we're still dealing with the original sin in America, which is slavery. And there's a lot to be said about like the ultimate goal of slavery was to, um, I'm going to say ultimate goal, but, you know, labor, right? Free labor, rob us of our labor. And I think, and I've said this again and again, that I think a lot of our status um, at scale in this country is because of that original sin, you know, not having access to government contracts early on. Fuck now. I'm talking about like, you know, early on, a lot of people built their wealth working with the federal government you know, uh, exclusionary practices after Jim Crow, right? Um, the black, the failure of the black banks, right? Like all this kind of stuff. 
that has just put us in this economic position, but was built off of the foundation we set for us. We, we set in this country, when we imported slaves um, to America and uh, set up this, this American inferiority complex, a uh, cultural inferiority complex towards uh, black Americans. And it's still here today. And I do think it raises a lot of uh, questions about, you know, what is the American experience? Um, can we really move forward as a nation without accepting the truth? And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to agree with everyone, right? Uh, but you can't be so naive to think that like, hey, man, you know what? They had a different experience in this country. I can't uh, fault them for thinking the way they do. Um, doesn't necessarily mean I think like you should die broke, black and bitter because of slavery and the injustices that were done to our ancestors and a lot of the injustices that are still done today. I think the ultimate sin for black people in this instance, and I'm going to talk about it on a future episode of allowing that to rob us of a happy and fulfilling life. You know, um, don't get it twisted. You know, I come on this platform and I talk about race and culture because this is just me learning and growing and understanding the world around me in my own unique way through media. I think media is just so powerful. Um, but I will be the first to tell you uh, as a black man living in the inner city who's experienced his own uh, set of racism in the military, in the civilian world, who still experiences it, right? I think the ultimate sin is, again, to allow that to rob me of a happy and fulfilling life, which I refuse to do. You know, so I spent a lot of time working on myself. And I believe, you know, at the end of the day, you know, um, I have control over the outcome. And a lot of, you know, stuff that's holding me back is less to do with other people and more to do with, you know, myself. And I'm, I'm working on pushing past that stuff. But that's just a deep reflection. That's for a, a bigger conversation. But again, man, last plug, check out the book, check out the Amazon Amazon series, uh, The Underground Railroad. I hope you all like it. Um, one of the characters I didn't talk about uh, today is Homer. And Homer is a 10-year-old uh, slave, a free man. He's not a slave. He was a slave that got freed by the, the slave catcher Ridgeway. And uh, he's super loyal to Ridgeway and won't leave his side. And basically he uses this little Negro, right? 10-year-old Negro to help him catch slaves. And uh, he educates him. He can read, he can write, you know, he's, he's a little scribe. Um, but uh, he's a interesting character, um, both in the film and in the book. Um, but uh, um, yeah, man, you gotta check it out, man. They gotta check it out, right? Like his character, honestly, is worth the whole discussion in itself. And uh, maybe I'll bring one guest on and we'll talk about it. So I hope you enjoyed uh, this session. I appreciate y'all for tuning in with me this long. Again, I'm trying something new, talking about a book. And I want to do a lot more of these as I as I use this platform as my place for personal and professional growth around all things race, culture, and uh, business. And so uh, for, our, for my subscribers, actually, correction. For all our listeners and super fans that are tuning in all over the world, do me a favor and head over to confessionsofanativeson.com. Sign up for our newsletter. And if you like this type of dialogue and are interested in booking me to speak at your organization, you can contact me through the website. Just click the tab that says book me to speak, fill out your contact information, and someone from my team will get back to you as soon as possible. I also need you to like, rate, and review this podcast for us. Uh, I need you to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast for me on iTunes and uh, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast hosting platform is, and share it with uh, others in your network. I'm just trying to create good uh, educational content that challenges us to think 
that is uh, channeling through the noise. And I really want to grow this show and grow my audience. So if you can help me do that, I'd greatly appreciate it if you could uh, leave us a review. Uh, if you're interested in ordering some dope coffee, head over to www.realdope.coffee. Again, we've got to start supporting our own businesses, y'all. It's black and veteran owned and is the epitome of economic empowerment. Shout out to Mike Lloyd, Stace Lloyd, and his beautiful wife, Michelle. Again, they're in the midst of a crowdfunding campaign. So uh, head over to their website and you'll see the crowdfund at crowdfundmainstreet.com. I think they only got about 30 days left. So if you're interested in investing, I already have. I've done multiple uh, investments in them at this point. Um, and I'm part of the team. So again, nothing but love for that team. So go over there and show it to them. And then Sincerely Bade, uh, head over to SincerelyBade.com uh, to order some handmade pain relief wellness products. Again, I know the CEO of the company. She just so happens to be my beautiful girlfriend, Simone. So I'll put in a good word for you. Remember, that's Bade spelled B-A-D-E. Feel free to message me on LinkedIn or shoot me an email at mike at weareironbound.com. Special shout out to my co-producer, Mike Lloyd, and the team from the Gifted Sounds Network. Rooting for everybody that's black. Until next time, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week. I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase our dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man.